Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 5. Please listen as I read to the word of the living God, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the firmness of this foundation, the immovable rock that is the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that your Spirit would fill this place and that you would open our minds and our hearts to the wonderful, glorious results of what you have accomplished for us through your Son. Teach our minds, stir our hearts even as you comfort them, and may we be people who rejoice in Christ and rejoice by giving our lives in service of him. We pray this in his name, amen. Today as we turn to chapter 5 of Romans, we're really starting a new section of this great book. He has spent the first four chapters establishing the heart of the gospel. Surely, if you've been with us these recent months, you understand the basics of the fact that we are all sinners. We will all stand before 
the living God who is holy and just. And because he is holy, because he is just, when we stand before him, he will determine our eternal fate according to his standard. And in our sin, there's only one just verdict, guilty. Worthy of eternal judgment and wrath. But because of Christ, who has gone to the cross, and though he was innocent of any wrongdoing, he took upon himself our justice, our sin, and God poured out his wrath on him. Now, when we believe and put our faith and trust in his work, God transfers his righteousness to us so that when we stand there, he can declare us righteous. That's what he's been telling us through these first four chapters, the righteousness of God displayed in the gospel, both in pouring out wrath against sin and in giving us his righteousness so that he can declare us righteous. Now chapters 5 through 8 turn to the so what. Let's get beyond the, the wonder and grandeur of the doctrine itself, but how does this impact our daily lives? What does this mean for those of us who have been justified by faith? And that's what he gets into in these chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. The first 11 verses of chapter 5 and the final 11 verses or so of chapter 8 form brackets or a bookends to this section. I'm going to, I'm going to summarize or, or come back at the end of our, our more than 30-minute sermon today. Uh, by reading the last part of chapter 8, and you'll see so many of the same themes justify glory, hope, the love of God. So many of these things that we'll see in these first 11 verses of chapter 5 are repeated at the end of chapter 8, forming the inclusio of what Paul is eager and zealous to teach us in these four chapters but we start here with chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, having been justified. Do you know how important grammar is? My homeschooling wife knows, and my kids hopefully are learning and caring a little bit about grammar. Kids, this is why grammar matters. He does not say, therefore, with the potential in the future of being justified. Or someday you will be justified. It's a past tense verb. You've been justified. Literally, the Greek should read a little more punctilier than that. You who were justified is what he's saying. When you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, God declares you righteous right then and there. So now Paul can say, we who have been justified. That's a good thing. We don't have to wait to get there to know that we're just in the sight of God. Now he will pronounce that and we will stand before him at judgment. But there's no fear. Because we already know what the verdict is going to be for those of us who believe the gospel. You're just. You may now enter into eternal life. So therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace is something we long for. 
Peace is something the world longs for. We want peace in the Middle East. We want peace in our homes. We want peace in our neighborhoods, peace in our nation. Because there's war constantly everywhere we turn, it seems. Oh, how it would be if Fort Carson and, and Schriever and the Air Force Academy and all of the other military camps, if, if all of them had to shut down, not because we removed their funding and sequesters, not because of governmental decisions, but because there was no longer any need to worry about guns and battle plans and training up warriors. Oh, the day when no longer do we have to think about strife and struggle and conflict. Imagine what the world would be like if there was utter peace. It's, it's unimaginable. We've never experienced that kind of thing in this life. We want peace. But Paul here is, is highlighting the most important peace we could ever have, and that is peace with God. Because though we may have conflict as Americans with Iran and Afghanistan and Arabs and, and China and Russia and all kinds of other nations, as an individual, our greatest enemy is not a human being. It is God himself. Do you realize, did you catch later on when he talks about we were, in, in verse 10, we were enemies, but we've been reconciled? We were enemies of God. One of the favorite illustrations for the gospel that, that people have used, maybe it's one of the, in one of those trick, chick tracks that Dwight was talking about this morning. I don't know, I haven't seen any of those tracks. But you've probably heard the illustration, seen the illustration, where the, the separation we have with God is we are separated in this, this massive chasm like the Grand Canyon where God's on one side and we're on the other. And the only bridge, the only way we can get across from the side we're on to the side where God is, is through Jesus. He's the bridge. And it's a good illustration as far as it goes. But it doesn't really tell the whole story. At least not in that form. Because according to this and other passages, it's not as though God is on one side saying, please just come over here. And it's not like we're on the side saying, if only there was a way to get over there. That's not really how it is. See, God is on his side of the chasm, and he has his troops lined up and ready that if we should make it across, he's going to usher us into a trial, declare us guilty, and then punish us as prisoners of war. Because we're hostile against him, and he's hostile against us. It is not a neutral relationship. Mankind is not neutral with respect to God. That's why we have to be very, very careful when we preach the gospel. If we start off with something like, God loves you, we had better qualify it quickly. He has proven his love for you by sending rain and snow and giving you food and life. And he's offered you the opportunity to be reconciled to him through his son, but it's not an unconditional love. You're his enemy. 
Your sin has provoked his anger, his wrath that Paul has been speaking about in the first four chapters. That is the natural state of mankind. We are at odds with God. We are unreconciled. We are his enemies. He's angry with us. And what we need is not only a bridge, but we need a mediator. Someone who will assuage his wrath and bring us into a good relationship. And that's what Paul has already said. Jesus is the propitiation. Now God is favorable to us because he has spent his wrath on his son so that he can forgive us, and now we are reconciled. That's the peace the gospel brings, where God puts down his guns. And he says, now you are welcome to come into my presence because of Jesus, and we are reconciled. That is peace with God. Now, in the Bible, peace does more than just connote the absence of hostility. If you're familiar with the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is the word translated peace in the Scripture, the concept of shalom is a very broad term. It's not merely the absence of hostility, but it includes prosperity and blessing and favor. And health and goodness. In the Old Testament prayer, when Aaron proscribed the great benediction, the blessing, peace with God was the shalom of God was God's face shining upon his people. If God's face is shining upon you, if he's looking at you glowingly, we might say, he loves you. He's prospering you. He is taking care of you. It's not just that he's no longer angry, but now he loves and he surrounds us with his blessing. The, the Greek word, the New Testament word, Irene, from which we get the word, the name Irene, brings forward this idea of unity and harmony. Where now instead of discord, when we sing and God sings and it's cacophony, now we're singing together. We're singing the same song and it's beautiful. And he has a part, we have a part, and it's a, it's a wonderful melody. That's all wrapped up in this idea of peace. We have God's peace. We have peace with him and his blessing and prosperity. As Paul will go on to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he's given us his son, how will he not also freely give us all things? We have his peace. We have his blessing and his grace. This is ours because... We are justified by faith. Remember what we talked about last week? We are not justified by our ceremonies and rituals. Abraham was not justified by his circumcision. He was declared righteous because he believed God. The same is true for us. We are justified by faith. Why has Paul labored so long to teach us this? Because it's the only thing that brings peace with God. You do not have peace with God if your, your hope of justification is ritual. You don't get peace with God through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through praying prescribed prayers, through coming to church, through burning incense, or any kind of ceremony. That is not what brings peace with God. 
That may somehow create, at least for a short time, some, some false peace in our own hearts, but it doesn't last because it's not real peace. Only the wrath of God being poured out on his son is capable of bringing true peace to us with God, and that only comes by faith. We are not at uh, given God's peace through our good works. All our works do is create more turmoil because they're not good enough. It's justification by faith that brings peace with God. This is why we have to get the gospel right. This is why we have to proclaim what is right and true to unbelievers because the only thing that will enable them to not only cross that chasm but find God willing to accept them is if they are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we have peace with God. And he says it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not through anyone else or anything else. Through whom also, he says, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Some of your translations say we now have access into this grace. First question we need to ask is what grace? It's not just generic grace. It's the grace of justification. It's the grace he's been talking about in chapters 3 and 4. How do we get this grace? By believing the gospel. And now he declares us righteous. And it's that grace that we stand in. The firm foundation we've already sung about. The bedrock under our feet when trials and turmoil comes is the grace of the gospel, of justification by faith. We're going to have trials. We are going to lose friends. We're going to lose family members. We're going to lose our job. The economy is going to tank. We're going to lose our good health. There are going to be all kinds of things that want to shake our foundations. How do we stand? On what do we stand? It's the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we are now declared righteous and justified in his sight. That's the gospel. That's the grace upon which we stand. I've said this before, but it's got to sink in. Every day that you and I wake up not in hell, it is the grace of God. When we get our eyes on our circumstances and our life, that is when we get shaky. That is when we become timid and afraid because this life is uncertain. But what gives us hope, what gives us sustenance, it is the fact that we have been declared righteous. Not just that God is going to see us through it. Not just that God is going to be there for us because, frankly, for some people in God's providence, it doesn't look like God's bringing any relief anytime soon. For some people, God brings not just days and weeks, but years of suffering. And if their hope is, one of these days it's going to turn around, there would be a time for the person to scratch their head and say, if my hope is in this life and this turning around, I don't have any hope. 
because it's been decades now. But that's not our hope. That is not the grace that this life is going to get better. The grace in which we stand is that in the next life, we have been declared righteous and we will have eternal life. There's a song that we sometimes sing that captures this so well. And I know that you're familiar with it, but I want to make sure that you get the words and the lyrics. It is, my hope is built on nothing less. You know that one? My hope, says the songwriter, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's my hope. That's my stand. That's the foundation under me. It's his blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Verse 2, when darkness veils his lovely face, when, when his face is covered over with darkness, I rest on his unchanging grace. Not his grace that somehow this is going to get better. That's not what we rest on. In every high, high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Do you know what the songwriter is referring to there? The book of Hebrews chapter 6, where the writer speaks of Jesus Christ now who has entered into the Holy of Holies as our intermediator who can now proclaim his death and his shed blood in our behalf as our high priest so that we have forgiveness of sin. The writer there says that is the anchor of our soul. It's all about forgiveness and the gospel. It's not a holding on that this is going to turn around someday and everything's going to get better. Verse 3. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Why? Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Do you see what the hymn writer is saying there? It's not about looking at this life. His eyes are on judgment day. How does he stand today? It's knowing that on that day, he has been declared righteous, and he stands in the righteousness of Christ. If that is where your hope is, if that is where your focus is, you can endure anything here and now because you know you're not going to be sent to hell for all eternity. And I promise you, as hard as it gets now, and it does get hard, there is nothing in this life that even scratches the surface of the suffering of being in hell. And to know that we have been preserved from that experience 
because we are declared righteous. That is the grace in which we stand, Paul says. By faith, we have access to this grace by faith, and we stand on it. All other ground is sinking sand. And he says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to take a little issue with our translator here. And even if you use the ESV or the NIV, they still got it imprecise. Exult, it's not a word we use much anymore. It doesn't mean exalt. If it had an A in the middle, that would be to to proclaim someone who's been exalted to a a high rank. And it's not really rejoice that he's getting at here. It's not the normal Greek word for rejoice. It is the same word used earlier in the book that is translated boast. He says, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Do you remember what Romans 3.23 said? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that we've been justified, declared righteous by faith, now we have once again the hope of the glory of God. We are going to experience the glory of God. We are going to stand in his presence and not run away in fear. Not shrink back as those who are afraid. We are going to see him in all of his radiance, all of his beauty. And we are going to live forever in the presence of the living God and experience the glory of God himself. It has been gained again for us because of Jesus Christ. And Paul here says, not only that we rejoice in it, that's sort of implied, but we boast. In this hope. You have no boast. I have no boast in our works. We have no boast before God. We have no boast before men that somehow we are righteous in and of ourselves. And he rebukes that. He rejects that. Don't for a minute think you can boast in and of yourself before people, before God. Even Abraham, the great patriarch, didn't boast before God in that way. But we do have a boast now. Because of Jesus, we have the certainty of the glory of God. When we use the word hope, we use it as a synonym for a mere wish, right? If you're a Cubs fan, you hope the Cubs might actually make it to the playoffs this year. But we all know that's an empty hope. It's a vain hope. <laughs> it's, it's a mere wish. You might as well wish upon a star. Now, if you're a Cardinals fan, you have a much better hope because there's history, there's precedent, there's some reason. But that is not what the Bible means by hope. When the Bible speaks of hope, it always means a certainty. It's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter of when. If it's a hope in the Bible, we haven't received it yet. We haven't experienced it yet. We're not there yet, but it will happen. You can bank on it because it's based upon God's promise. 
Remember last, last week? Abraham hoped against hope because he understood who it was that made the promise, and it was a sure thing. Paul says here, we boast in the certainty, the expected hope of the glory of God. Let me ask you the question, do you boast in that? Do you brag in your hope of the glory of God? And if not, why not? We're supposed to. See, we're not boasting in ourselves when we boast in the glory of God. We're boasting in what he has done. We're saying God is the great promise keeper, and if he said this is true, it will happen. What kind of testimony is it to people if they ask us, are you sure? And you say, I, I hope so. In this sort of Chicago Cubs kind of way. You're not instilling in them any reason to trust the gospel. You know, at the end of it, I've done all I could. You know, I've gone to church, and I was baptized, and I pray a lot, and I gave a lot of money. And, you know, I've done my, my I give it the old college try. I, I hope it turns out good. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, I am standing in the promise of God himself. He said, if I persevere to the end in trusting his son, I will receive his glory, and I am trusting by his grace, and it's a certainty. This is what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. He didn't say, I, I tried, did the best I could. He says, I fought the good fight. I'm talking about the gospel. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, is he bragging? He's just declaring what is true. I've done this. Now, is he going to take credit for his success? Of course not. He's going to give all glory to God. But it is him. He is the one who's kept the faith. God didn't keep the faith. Paul did. What's he say next? In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Is that bragging? In a sinful way? No. It's boasting in what God has declared he would do. It is a statement of faith and trust and absolute certainty that God will keep his promise. He says, I've, I've done my part. I've persevered. I've protected the gospel from error. I've proclaimed the gospel. And when I get there, God is going to do what he promised me he would do. He's going to put the crown of righteousness on my head. I'm going to be declared righteous there fully and finally. And I will enter into eternal life. And he says, this is not only for me, but to everyone who has loved his appearing. Do you long for that day? Do you love Jesus? Can you not wait till he returns? If that is true of you, and if you never take your eyes off of what Christ has accomplished, then you can be certain of the glory of God. We should be people who boast in this. So the people are saying, why are you so certain you're going to get in? Because I believe the gospel. And God said I will get in because of the gospel.
That's how Paul did it. Because we boast in this hope. Not only this, he says, we also exalt, that's the same word, we boast in our tribulations. We're going to boast when trials come, when afflictions come, when hardships come, when pain comes, when suffering comes. We're going to boast in that. Why? Is Christianity masochistic? We love to feel pain. Bring it on. Can't get enough. Obviously, that's not the case. Where he's going to go here is that the end result of tribulation is more hope and proof positive that our faith is real. I want the kind of faith that perseveres to the end, that has that certainty that I can boast in the hope of the glory of God. How do I know if I have that? Do I appeal to some decision I made when I was younger? Do I appeal to my consistency in going to church and my giving? My taking the Lord's Supper every time it comes around? I do a lot of work in the community. What do I place my certainty in that my faith is real? That it's not just a false profession. Tribulations, Paul says, puts us on the path to knowing. Because he says tribulations produce perseverance. When there is a hard thing in your life, a difficulty in our life, it provides us the opportunity to remain faithful through it, to not take our eyes off of the cross, to not take our eyes off of the sky looking for and longing for and loving the return of Christ. It gives us the opportunity to test and see, is my faith genuine? Jesus said the same thing in the parable of the sowers. Remember the, the sower went out and he threw seed around and, and some didn't even respond because Satan came and, and he grabbed the gospel. The, that was the, the first seed. The, the, the birds come, eat the seed. Satan comes and steals the gospel and, and people don't respond. But it's the next two, so, the next two seeds that are so important. The next two groups also fail to make it to the end. They spring up. There's some indication, there's some response, there's a profession of faith, there's an outward declaration of belief in the gospel. They start doing a few things, one of them even gets excited, and yet at the end, they both wither and die. And Jesus says it's only the last group, the fourth soil, that produces fruit that are truly saved. Why? Why? Because saving faith is persevering faith. It's faith that does not get choked out by the worries of life. The deceitfulness of riches and the, the temptations of wealth don't pull this person away from the gospel. And neither do persecutions and trials and hardships. When God brings those to us, it gives us the opportunity to persevere in the midst of affliction.
And Paul says when we do that a few times, that leads to proven character. You do it once, maybe you got lucky. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it seemed. But when you endure trial after trial and tribulation after tribulation and affliction after affliction, at some point you look back and you realize, my faith is real. I have not turned back. I have not given up. I have not said this is too hard. It would be easier if I just went my own way. And Paul says, when your character is proven, it produces hope, certainty. I am his. He is mine. I am standing on the foundation of his grace. My faith is real. Else I would have turned back a long time ago. And that's hopeful, he says. And hope that does not disappoint, or it could be translated, it doesn't bring us to shame. This hope will not lead to judgment day, where after all, after we've persevered, after we've proven ourselves, and we get there, and he says, nope, you don't get in. Nope, you're not just. You're not justified. You're not declared righteous. Just kidding about all that. This hope will not put us to shame because it's a real hope. Because, he says, the end of all this is the love of God has been, past tense again, poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. And he's introducing several things that he's going to expound on in upcoming chapters. But this hope doesn't put us to shame, and we don't expect anything except God to say, well done, welcome into your glory, because by persevering and proving our character, it shows that his love has been poured out, not sprinkled out, not doled out, not with a dropper here, a little drip, drip. It has been lavished like a waterfall gushing down upon us. That's why we persevered. And in our hearts, we feel it. We experience it existentially, his love pouring out, and it's because the Spirit of God is really there. You will only persevere through trial if the Spirit of God is alive and well in your heart. And if he is, that's vindication. That's evidence the Spirit of God is there. We feel it. You see, there's an external and an internal confirmation here. The external confirmation is you persevere. The internal confirmation is you feel God's love. You know it to be true in your soul. You know the difference, and I know the difference, between appearances and reality. Between looking good in the midst of trial because it's the right thing to do, and I want everybody to think I'm a good Christian. Versus knowing in your heart, God really does love me in the midst of this, and I really do love him in the midst of this. When that is our response to trials, it is confirmation that our faith is real, and that brings us hope. And he will go on in chapter 8 to talk much more about the Spirit of God. We know this is true. We know God loves us. We know it's all reality because, verse 6, while we were still helpless. Does helpless mean we could help ourselves a little bit? Is that what it means? I, I could help myself some, and, but I needed some help from God. 
No. We were helpless. When we were on this side of the chasm, we had no way of getting over there and no way of reconciling our relationship with God. We were helpless to do so. We were completely and utterly dependent upon God doing something. And he did. At the right time. It was right that he do this when we were helpless because otherwise we would think, hey, I, I did part of this. I'm good. I, I get some credit here. While we were still helpless, not, not waiting for us to do something on our own because we couldn't, at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly, that's us, wicked, sinful, not lovers of God, not basically good people, not trying the best we can and, hey, we can't help it, not people who just need a little more education, a little more money thrown at us, and we'll be okay, and, and we'll do things to please God. No, no, no. We were helpless and ungodly, and it was at that time that Christ died for us. For, he says, one will hardly die or scarcely die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. We all know people. There are some, some people that, that we're impressed with, people that we love, people that we look at and think, man, they've done some really, really great things. That person deserves to, die more, or deserves to live more than I do. Or maybe they've done some great things for us. We think, you know what? I would step in front of the bullet for them. I would step in front of the train for them. I, I would die in their place. Maybe, possibly, there are a few of those around that we would say, yeah, I would die for that person. You gonna die for Adolf Hitler? Osama bin Laden? I could just crack open Yahoo News and start reading all the headlines. Somebody could look at you and say, I'd die for them. He says, maybe perhaps someone would die for a good person. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't die for any good people. He didn't die for a single good person. Because there aren't any, ultimately. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get righteous. How long would that have been? How long would he have been waiting if he were waiting for us to get righteous? He'd still be waiting, right? While we were still sinners, while we, we, while we were still ungodly, he died for us. That's how we know he loves us. This peace with God is not a peaceful, easy feeling the eagles sang about some years ago. It's not that quiet in our heart that just makes us go, oh, God, God really likes me. It's not something that's in here as much as it is an objective truth. Now, we do experience his love, we do experience his peace, but only after we come to the realization this is an objective peace. It's a real peace. It's not just his attitude toward us. It is now that he has forgiven us and he's no longer angry. That's what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved 
by his life. I skipped a verse, didn't I? Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Two things, we've been justified and we've been reconciled. We've been declared righteous, subjectively he's not angry with us anymore. And we've been reconciled subjectively, he's not angry with us anymore. We're friends. We're now friends with a God who is angry with us, and we're not under his wrath because Christ died when we were still helpless. And not only this, he says, but also we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, not future, now, Receive the reconciliation. Our justification is now. It's the moment we put our trust truly in the work of Christ. We are declared righteous so that on that day when we stand before him, and we will, you'll stand before him, I will stand before him, we will give an account, and on that day we will be saved from his wrath. Because as he looks at his record, and he looks at our account, he sees that we have obeyed him perfectly. Because he's looking at Jesus' account, not ours. So between now and then, between our justification and the day of our salvation in its final form, God is reconciled with us. He's already given us the justification, and so he's at peace with us. He's our friend, and he loves us, and he will bless us. And he will pour out his shalom upon us because it has been done in Christ. Let me read to you. Don't turn there. Just listen. I know you know this passage well. Just listen to it afresh. The end of chapter 8. And notice all the parallels and the bringing back things that he just said in chapters five, chapter 5, 1 through 11. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That's just another way of saying we can trust him to the tribulations. What good is he working in us? He's making us more like his son. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn, that's speaking of the son, firstborn among many brethren. And now notice the past tenses. And whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. Now, we haven't been glorified yet. We're not there yet, but it is so certain Paul speaks of it as a done deal as though it were in the past. If you've been predestined, you've been called. If you've been called, you've been justified. If you've been justified in God's economy, you're already glorified. It is a certainty. It's just a matter of when for you. In his books, it's done. We just don't have his perspective yet. Because we're still trapped in this time that we have to go through. But it will happen. You can take it to the bank. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? 
if we're at peace with God, if he's reconciled himself to us, who's our enemy? Well, we have lots of enemies, right? But who has a chance of success? Who can destroy us? Who can win against us? If God is on our side, nobody can. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Sounds a whole lot like Jesus to me. When Jesus says, ask and you'll receive. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and you shall find. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who knocks, the door is open. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who asks persistently will receive the Holy Spirit. You have not because you ask not. What good thing is God going to withhold from those for whom he crucified his son? The answer is nothing. We've got to make sure we define good the way God does. It's not the, the temporal things. It's not wealth and even health sometimes that we get so caught up in that God's concerned about. But he's not going to withhold any good thing from us. I mean, if he's already given us his son, if he's already crucified his son on our behalf, what's he going to hold back? That's Paul's point. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? If God has declared you righteous, and he's already said it's a done deal. When you stand before me, I will declare you, I will pronounce you righteous. Who is going to say, nope, you're condemned? Does anybody have the authority to do that? God is the highest supreme court, right? Nobody else can come along. The church can't come along. The government certainly can't come along. Say, nope, you're guilty before God. Now, temporally we're guilty, and he does discipline his children. And you could be guilty before the state for committing crimes, but your eternal hope of forgiveness, if God has pronounced you righteous, nobody can pronounce you unjust. And I think Paul is stressing this because, do you know what Satan is called predominantly in the Scripture? The accuser. And he loves to enslave us, to cause us to think, I don't know. I don't know if I can boast in the hope of the glory of God because, you know, my thoughts have not been altogether pure lately. Well, if they're impure, you need to repent. But don't let the accuser condemn you if God has justified you. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If that's true, he says, then who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it has been written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We'll talk about what that means in a few months. But, he says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, if he's died for us, if he's justified us, if he's given his son for us, what is there possibly that can come between us and his love? Nothing. What the apostle wants us to take from this is to never again believe that God is out to get us. He's not out to get you if you're a Christian. He's not against you in any form or any fashion if you are a believer. He is never disgusted with you, never never repulsed by you. He's never going to forsake you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forget to be kind and gracious to you. Never. No matter how bad it gets, when you, are, when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, where someone close to you is, when the enemy comes and floods your head with doubt in your heart, when it seems like it takes every ounce of energy I have just to keep going one foot in front of the other, You will stop and turn around unless you're convinced God loves you and has forgiven you and there is nothing that will separate you from that. He will bring trials into our lives, every one of us. He promised us he would. And why do we call them trials? Because our faith is on trial. Remember the book of James? Do you really trust me? Are you really standing on the grace of the gospel or are you standing on something else? If you're standing somewhere else, you'll prove it by giving way. He loves you, beloved. He's proven it in the greatest way possible. He wants us to feel it down to our very core. We are at peace. He's not against us. He is for us. He will see us safely through all the way to the end. And we will experience his glory. But our job is to stay on the foundation of his grace in the gospel. And that's what Paul is exhorting us to do. To get this in our minds, his peace with us is objective. His love for us is objective so that we will subjectively hang on through any and all circumstances. And I know there are many people in this room right now who have suffered tremendously recently. Of course, in our hearts are Dan and Jenny, and they're going to come share in a moment. But they're not the only ones. And if you're in a period of of respite right now, don't get too comfortable. Because the hard times are coming again. And Paul is desperate to get us to say, I will boast in my tribulations. Not in myself, but in my friend who is the living God 
who has justified me, and I am secure in him. Let's pray. Father, make us people who boast. Certainly not in ourselves. We have nothing to boast about. But free our lips to boast in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your goodness and your faithfulness and your trustworthiness that even through the difficult times, we will glorify you and boast in you and brag on you and your promises and the hope, the certainty we have because of Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who is trusting in something else, religious activity, their own righteousness, church affiliation, whatever, that you would, you would grant them repentance today to trust only in Christ. Father, if there is someone here today who is not reconciled to you, who knows what side of the chasm they are on and knows that you are their enemy, would you bring true objective peace today through Christ? Father, for our dear brother and sister Dan and Jenny, the girls, for the many others who have experienced suffering recently, Give them the steadfastness to stand firmly on Christ, the solid rock, not in hopes that it gets better in this life, as much as the certainty that we have been justified, that we are each of us sinners who should be in hell. But by your grace, we will have eternal life with you in glory. May our lives bear out that we believe that. For I ask in Jesus' name.